need you, we need you, and uh, recognize your hand in our lives, and we pray that we will be people who love each other and uh, walk by faith in your only begotten Son, and so be with us tonight, our volunteers, people who help behind the scenes, and people who are seeking and struggling, help those people, and uh, help us tonight, and things that are right, keep, things that aren't, let us forget, in Jesus' name, amen. So, the man, the Bible answer man 30 years on the air answering people's questions about the bible 30 years hank hennegraff evangelicals loved him for the most part uh they've had him come to speak at churches of course they believed his insights read his books uh his gig was all and i mean all about doctrine people would call in what about this doctrine that doctrine this theology that was his call-in radio program, heard around the world, uh, proper exegesis of the Bible, proper sound hermeneutic of the Bible, and then proper and acceptable application. Hank Hennegraff was not, is not afraid to say that's not right, that's wrong, that this isn't right. Uh, he's known for telling people what uh, is right and wrong based on the Bible. The man on Palm Sunday, no less, became a card-carrying member of the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, baptized there, picture of him in North Carolina. Uh, now, he's not some wet-behind-the-ears teenager that fell into the clutches of some Greek Orthodox missionaries. <laughs> this is the Bible answer, man. Uh, and I remind you that uh, it was, he's the only Bible answer man, except for his predecessor, who is Dr. Walter Martin. He was the first Bible answer man. Now, he has baptized a Greek Orthodox. Uh, he has had to accept religious obligations. He's had to receive Greek Orthodox baptism. Now, this is saying more than you might know. He's received chrismination. And what that is, is that's the belief that a holy anointing oil causes you to receive the Holy Spirit. He has uh, submitted to confessionals and to Holy Communion. Uh, he will venerate saints, the, the, uh, the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. They will venerate saints. They will celebrate all sorts of feast days. He will participate in divine litur uh, liturgy and a host of other rites, including uh, they pray solely, I think solely, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the faith police of evangelicalism, who are alive and well on the internet, are all over this. I mean, uh, a couple of them have had some decorum, most of them with venom, citing passages about, in the last days, the very elect will fall, and how he has been on a downward spiral ever since he embraced preterism. I've read that that we could see he was beginning to have trouble. You see, that's what evangelicals do when you don't necessarily agree with them. Suddenly you are, you know, just the worst and they go back in your history and say, did you notice he grew a mustache in December of 87? Hmm. They, they find reasons why he's diabolical now. And uh, they think that they have the right to judge the, the Bible answer man. And you know what I think? I think more power to Hank Hennegraff uh, and his family. Two of his 12 children and his wife joined him. He's obviously a man who pursues God. There's a picture of him kneeling down. And people who have met him, they say he's a, a, a humble man. On the, on the air, he sounds kind of arrogant to me, but he, he is very humble. If you don't know the difference between Greek Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, is they're very similar in terms of liturgy, but uh, Roman Catholicism is more about what you do or the doings of Christ, and uh, Greek Orthodoxy is about the metaphysical Christ, very big on the mystical, metaphysical union of becoming one with Christ. And uh, so to me, it's a beautiful thing that the Bible answer man has reached conclusions that are at odds with evangelicals who have used him to say this is what is right, this is what is right, this is what is right, and now 
the Bible answer man has said, this is what is right. And it goes counter to what the evangelical police have said must happen, must be believed, etc., etc. In this event, we are given a living example of how subjective the faith is. It's, it couldn't have been better crafted. Uh, it can't be dictated objectively. I don't think because he's the Bible answer man, he can tell the world now Greek orthodoxy is the only way. That's what he has chosen. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I don't really care that he's done it. And we will never agree objectively on, on tenets of the faith. And this is evidenced by a man who has spent 30 years on air answering live questions about the Bible has now converted. So what does that say about knowledge of the Bible? It says that, listen, he could be wrong. He may be right, but how can we know? All we can know is, all we can, all we can know is our own heart. He knows his heart. Looking at Brother Hanegraaff, all I know is he is a Bible reader. He studies it. And he does appear to love the Lord, and he's willing to do something that will possibly, probably shoot him in the foot as the Bible answer man. He probably has lost already support. And again, his gig, he laid his gig on the altar and joined something he believes is right. Now again, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm just saying, when are we going to say, hey, you know, he, 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 he ex receives Christ. He does some things that are very different now, but he's a brother. Uh, we, can find out all, we can find all kinds of reasons why he's wrong. We can point at all the ways he's slipped, or we can say we're not going to judge him. But it's a perfect, it's, it's like it's been laid in our laps. God took a guy, it's almost as bad as if he became a Catholic. <laughs> and I mean, because that would just really rock the, the world. And, and yet he's become something very close to a Catholic, no matter what critics say and will continue to say, I don't agree with Greek orthodoxy. I don't, I don't agree with organized religion. I, I find the whole thing, I mean, their costumes and their incense and the liturgy and, and the stuff that they do that is chrismata or chrismatica. What, I, I don't even understand any of that, but he's, he says, this is what works for me. And I congratulate the Hanegraaff uh, family. I pray that the road will increase their faith and their love. That's all we can really do in the end is hope that the path that we're on increases our faith and our love. And when the Christian church starts saying that to each other, when the apologists start saying, you know, Hank Hanegraaff has decided to become a Greek, member of the Greek Orthodox Church. That's all right. Let's just keep using his wisdom in the Bible. And let's not just, I mean, we're going to be so much better off. Received this email uh, recently, dear Sean, I would like to know the symbolic meaning of your tattoos. Is there any evidence against tattoos in the Bible as, a, as we were told when we were LDS? Uh, this is from Linda. My, tattoo, my tattoos are, are uh, personally meaningful to me and me alone. I got my first one. Uh, this is my first one uh, for one reason and one reason alone. And this is true. Um, I honestly, from my heart, look down on anyone who had a tattoo. I, from my heart, thought I was better than them, and I thought that they were uh, other side of the track people, and uh, that they were lesser than me. And I realized that as I continued on in ministry, many of the people that I related to had them, but more, uh, I mean, I'm 50 years old, I haven't gotten a tattoo, I could have had many, but I realized I was, and, and so I just put it to the test. I said, I'm going to get one then, you know? So I got this one, and then everyone says, why is it upside down? You know, your tattoos are supposed to face you. And I say, so when I flip you off, you'll know I'm a Christian. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so I got that because I was so uh, dismissive of anyone with a tattoo. So there is an Old Testament passage that talks about not marking your, not printing in your flesh, but it was to the Levite priests. There is scriptural evidence that Jesus has writing on his thigh. So there's thought that, I mean, I don't know how you get writing on your thigh unless it's a tattoo. And, that, and So I'm not saying that it was, but, but perhaps the most important thing about the tattoos that I have is that the prim principle is we have freedom in Christ. So the tattoos are not the tattoos. It's irrelevant. 
And, and so, but Linda goes on, she says, I always get spiritually fed by your messages at campus. My husband used to join me in watching your shows. He's hung up over your hair and clothing. I know, my, we're getting a very festive crowd in here tonight. Uh, I know my sister agrees with him. I explained the importance of looking at your heart and to stop judging by appearances. When I was LDS, I would conform to the LDS culture, but my heart was dead. My heart was, uh, their approach, uh, the one your husband is apparently hung up on, my not conforming to, uh, is to make the messenger appear so worthy, so clean and good, that that blinds you of the false gospel that they're, that you're being, that's being preached. And, um, and once I started getting kind of thinking, and it took a long time, I wasn't really a thinking person until I hit, entered my 20s, and I read Henry David Thoreau who said, trust no enterprise that requires new clothing, and things like that. I started to kind of wake up to what the whole scheme was about. When we look at the message and mission of John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Messiah, uh, he came into the scene really rough, lived in the desert, ate only grasshoppers and honey, dressed in, lamb, uh, dressed in uh, skins and, and, and Campbell's hair coat, and never cutting his hair or shaving. And Jesus talked to John the Baptist's disciples, and he said, what did you go out to see when you went out to see John? A man clothed in soft clothing? Behold, they which are gorgeously appareled and live delicately are in king's courts, meaning those are the people who are in the king's courts of this world. He goes, but what did you go out to see, a prophet? He says, I say unto you, he's much more than a prophet. What Jesus seems to be saying to John's disciples is, did you go out into the wilderness to find a man dressed in soft clothing? No, you didn't. Those live in palaces. You didn't go out into palaces to find the truth. You went out into the wilderness and you found a guy who was like really, really radical, right? And he says that wildness about him was something that was telling you you could trust the integrity of this guy. You know, if you go to guys in the soft palaces and the robes and, and they're, they're teaching while being fed grapes, you got to kind of wonder about their motives. But John the Baptist, you went out into the desert and what did you find? You found this guy and, and his appearance made you think this is the real deal. So my intentions are the same, and they always have been. Linda continues, she says, will you ever consider changing your focus to appeal to people like my 73-year-old husband and my sister who have put up a block to your message over your ponytail, Brigham Young-style beard, and wrinkled shirts? <laughs> Linda means well. She really does. She means well. She loves her family. She loves her sister and husband. She wants them to hear. But this leaves me in a predicament. It leaves all of us in a predicament. Do we change how we are honestly and become something we honestly aren't in order to present a message through a dishonest, through a dishonest um, presentation? You know, and, and, uh, and will we do this, will we make these changes so a certain segment of society will accept us, like Linda's husband and sister, uh, while turning our back on a segment of society who relates to us? See the problem with changing to try to appeal to a people? You're, you'll never satisfy everybody. And so what's really being asked of me is to appear better to Linda's husband and sister, for them to think I'm better so that they'll buy into what I'm saying. That's really what's being said, and I can't do it. Because if I can't honestly represent myself as what I honestly am, then I... Then, uh, I can't honestly represent the, the, the message. So you see, in my case, I'm not better. That's the point. When someone tunes in and watches or whatever, I want you to know I am not better. Don't look at me and say, I want to be like that guy morally. I want to be like him in this way. I want to follow him. I want you to see someone who struggles with the flesh. I want you to see someone who sometimes doesn't want to shave, doesn't want to take a shower, wants to eat 20,000 calories, <laughs> you know, wants to do all the things a carnal man because I do. I want you to see that about me and realize that when I talk, I am saying the only thing that saved me was Jesus. And, and see, see, what you're doing is you want me to appeal to you through my flesh so your flesh 
will be gratified. I want you, if you're looking at me, I want you to be disgusted by my flesh so your spirit can discern what the truth is and not be influenced by the appearance. Do you get that yet? When will we get that? And I'm not talking to you, Linda. I'm talking to your husband. I hope he's watching tonight. I mean, wake, wake the hell up. I don't know what you want. So I'm not a good man. I am a man saved by his grace through faith. The only thing that's good in me is spiritual. The new man is good, but that's because of Christ. But the flesh is not. So uh, raised a whited sepulcher full of dead, dried bones. And I want to flip it. I want you to see dead, dried bones with a whited heart made uh, white by Jesus' blood. So uh, for me, integrity begins by being true to who you are outwardly. And, uh, and I think if you mess with that, you start to mess with the integrity of the message. Linda adds, I remember when you appeared much more conservative in your dress and it wasn't such a distraction to people. Um, I smile at this. I have always been different in my apparel, even as a Mormon missionary. When I was in my youth, always been different in my appearance. Uh, when I was on a Mormon mission, the sister missionaries gathered a fund to buy me a new suit. Seriously. <laughs> And uh, only to find out that it wasn't from a lack of money that I didn't have the new suit. It was because I just liked that style of suit that I had. And, and so when I did the first show here, my hair was buzzed and it was bleached pure white. And I was wearing all denim. <laughs> I look at that thing, it's just horrible. And, and yet that's what I did. So uh, the real th prayer is for all people to look around and not hope that people will change around us, but that will change toward them. See, we can't be hoping everyone will change around us. We gotta pray that we will change. Uh, in conclusion, Linda says, I will continue to watch your show and love your heart. Just wishing my husband could join me again in worship. I am sorry if this offends you. Please accept my apology. Totally accepted. I understand your concerns and I appreciate you enjoying the messages. But what you're really asking for, Linda, and I'm not sure you really mean this, but what your husband's asking for is, bottom line, for G is like the Pharisees asking Jesus not to sit with sinners. It's the same thing as his apostles to stop eating with unwashed hands. It's the same as John the Baptist, someone telling him you should shave. It's all the same thing, right? All right, let's get into it, the final if you stay with me tonight and hear this, you're going to see the final uh, reference to Chomsky. This is a super important show uh, titled Hacking at the Root, uh, Hacking at the Branches While Striking True to the Root. We've been appealing to the mind of Noam Chomsky to try and understand the means and measures powerful, wealthy people the few used to control the many. You guys have been patient. I just got a text from Ireland saying, when is Noam Chomsky gonna be over? With a parenthetical uh, question, uh, comment, he sounds like he should have been a dentist. Chomsky. Oh, the level of thought we have with each other. So uh, you've been patient, but this is really gonna help us see how to better understand how the few manipulate the many. I don't, of course, necessarily agree with Chomsky and his assessment of his opinions of big government and big business and major media outlets, some of it, sure. But I do believe that his principles are applicable to the few in religion who seek to manipulate the many. Uh, thus far, we've appealed to six of nine principles. We're gonna finish the last three tonight that are used for, uh, by the few to govern the many. They are reduce democracy, shape ideology, redesign the economy, shift the burden, attack solidarity. Last week we covered the six, running the regulators, owning the, those who regulate you. And we've applied all of these to religion. And this brings us to the seventh pr principle where he talks about engineering elections. This is something else that they do. Now, speaking to this, he says, the concentration of wealth yields a concentration of political power especially at the, as the cost of elections skyrocket. What he means by this is campaign, campaign costs rise, and so political parties are forced into the pockets of major corporations. 
and therefore this essentially means that elections are bought and paid for in advance by corporations. Now, uh, when this occurs, we see more and more that our elections are uh, engineered, is what his point is. Aside from the, pack, from the fact that uh, politics is part of religion, typically today, the more someone gives to a religion, the more they receive. And it's interesting, that's the opposite of the way it was in Jesus' day. The more a person needed, as in grace from Jesus, the more they received. But in our day, it's the more you give, the more that you receive. Uh, but there's really not a parallel to this principle to the modern church, so I'm not going to cover it. Let's go on to the eighth principle, which is keeping the rabble in line. This is the eighth of nine principles that Chomsky says the few use to control the many. Keeping the rabble in line, a very important to the ninth principle, which we'll get to. Now, according to him, and he's no slouch, according to him and his stated concerns and interests, there has been one unifying force with all of its flaws that has been at the forefront of trying to improve the lives of the many. Now, this is Chomsky saying there has been one force in place that has tried to improve the condition of the masses. Chomsky says that that force has been, drum roll please, organized labor. Boo, hiss, bad, ca bad, the capitalists, no, 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 boo, organized labor, toe the line Mormons, we hate unions, uh, American evangelicals, we don't like unions, organized labor is bad, unions evil, they be of the devil, all of the stuff, right? So in some ways, some ways they seem to be, uh, admittedly. But let's discuss Chomsky's points for a minute. First of all, he says that organized labor unions, and a lot of people don't know that all of our teachers, at least where I came from, I don't know about in Utah, our union, uh, all of our police force, all of our fire department, uh, airline pilots, airlines uh, flight attendants, uh, these are just a few that are all in organized labor. And he says that Besides being a unifying force among the masses, organized labor serves as a barrier to stop corporate tyranny, okay? And I just want to take 30 seconds to repeat his point. We have been talking about how the few in religion, in church, try to capitalize and abuse and manipulate the many so as to protect their power and their wealth. If you are a business owner, I'm not siding with Chomsky, uh, for labor unions, uh, but neither am I standing against labor unions. My, my father, when he was a young man, he was in a union at the uh, Herald Examiner in Los Angeles. Then he joined the LA County Fire Department. He was in a union with the fire department. But when he went with my brother and bought a steel fabrication company, they were hated unions then for obvious reason. He didn't want their workers uh, organizing. Why? Because my dad wanted to control them. He didn't want them having equal rights and saying what went on. He was the owner, you see? So he's, pl he's played both sides. However, my, my point is that in all we've talked about when it comes to organized religion, Chomsky is saying that the one unifying force that has tried to improve the lives of the masses has been labor unions, uh, warts and all. We've been focused on, on how the religious few, and I'm talking about the people at the top of religious organizations, want to control the masses so that they can continue to be in power. And Chomsky makes it clear that organized labor or collective bargaining has been the only thing against that happening. If that's the case in the faith, what is that telling us? Think about that for a minute. If the only way for people in the faith to be protected, and I'm not saying we need to organize unions of believers, but I am suggesting that there's something to that, that when the power lies in the hands of the few, there will continue to be abuses of tyranny. But when it is spread out among the masses in the, in the institution, then there is an equilibrium and people are more happy. 
Chomsky says that the major, almost fanatical attack against labor is because it is a democratizing force. It's a democratizing force. Remember the first principle that he introduced? He says it's to, uh, the, the, the principle they use is to reduce democracy. They want to reduce democracy because then they have more control. Well, the problem with labor unions is they are a democratizing force. And so uh, they are fought against. Already we see application to the principles in religion. Think about this. If labor unions are a democratizing force that stand against corporate tyranny with all their warts and difficulties, and I know they have them, but if that is the, the force that stands against corporate tyranny, then the most unifying way of church governance, church governance now, is unifying, democratizing, healthy, robust exchanges between everybody involved. And not just a top-down authoritarian, we are the few, do what we say approach. We're getting applause in here. This is a first. Usually it's eggs and tomatoes. So it is in and through an open subjective environment where all things are able, open for people to talk about and love on each other, disagree with each other, sure. We're going to disagree when two people are in a room. But if, we, if, if the shift in the church can be, let's just open the doors and we'll talk about Jesus, We'll talk about what the scripture says. People can disagree. They can live the way they're going to live. They can do what they're going to do. That is a democratizing approach. And that is a unifying approach. And it is a stance against religious tyranny, which occurs when the few want people to do this, serve that, pay this, do this, come serve, pay the church, feed the church, feed us, feed my vacation, feed our, you know, you get it? So it's right there in front of us through this principle. Chomsky also noticed that uh, the management tells people they have to work 80 hours a week and uh, for 40 hours pay. And a labor union comes in and tells the tyrannical demands, we aren't going to do that, right? We have yet another added value to the whole thing as one of the things we're trying to stand against with religious tyranny. When ecclesiastical abuses are heaped upon the many by the few in the name of God himself, this is another benefit to the subjective open door, don't have to agree, but let's get along approach. Now, I know I'm ahead of myself in this stuff, but I do believe that maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 50 years from now, when the church is just nothing but uh, whatever it becomes, I think these ideas are going to have some value down the road. And people will say, why don't we start doing this more uh, from the heart? Organized labor has been strong in the Americas up until the 1920s when it was virtually crushed out of existence here in the U.S. By the mid-1930s, it started to rise back up when this president named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he said, you know, I'm sympathetic to laborers and I know the abuses that are heaped upon them by the few. But his hands were tied, and so he goes to the labor unions and he says, listen, I can't do anything. You're going to have to force my hand to support you. And they said, how do we do that? And he said, go out and protest and go out and demonstrate. And when the pressure is sufficient upon the public, I'll be able to step in with legislation that will help you. This is a quote from Roosevelt. I am not in favor of a return to that definition of liberty under which for many years a free people were being gradually regimented into the service of a privileged few. So what he's saying there is this is the heart of the matter. The very thing FDR was not in favor of a return to that ugly def definition of liberty under which the, for many years a free people were gradually regimented into the service of the privileged few. In, either words, in other words, when it comes to religion, Jesus came, he set us free. The message is clean, it's pure, it's simple. He saved us, right? Uh, but institution going all the way back to Constantine, maybe even before, have stepped in and gradually regimented us into the service of the few. You see, 
So looking back with fondness to the days of Christ, I also am in agreement with FDR that I don't want to return to that definition of liberty for which hundreds of years free people in Christ's name were gradually regimented into institutional religion. And then they, they bore fetters of the faith that they couldn't break free of because they were afraid of God. Uh, so it goes without saying that big business was appalled by what FDR did. And uh, Chomsky says, just read the press of the late 1930s and you'll discover evidence to support this. The Second World War hit, everything was put on a back burner. And, but when that ended, a major offensive came forward to crush anything that had to do with organized labor in America. The Taft-Hartley Act, McCarthyism, even the Reagan era was, Reagan was like, you go to work, you go on strike, you will be fired. We're gonna crush the unions because he was in support of the few being in control. Now stay with me, we're almost done. How would this will all apply to the faith? Chomsky explains that labor unions, when they came back and forth under FDR, were systematically crushed by and through the Taft-Hartley and all that stuff. The net effect of crushing organized labor unions was to crush the democratizing power of the people. And it kept the power in the hands of the few. Now get ready. Something had to rise up out of the ashes of that crushed democratizing power that once existed in America in the labor unions. Something had to replace it because Americans and, and people around the world have to look for something to live for. And the few have to provide them with that if they're going to crush their democratizing uh, effects, right? So they needed to do something to manipulate them and keep them manipulated. Now, those of you who have been LDS know the LDS do this to their members. They keep the, they keep the many from rising up and crushing the few that sit there on North Temple. They do this by keeping them busy. Busy, busy, busy. Doing work for the living, doing work for the dead, doing work for their salvation, doing work for their exaltation, living, being on that hamster wheel, chugging, chugging, chugging to try to make it. You're so busy you can't even think about anything, about the next minute, the next meeting. Busy, busy, busy. The LDS are smart. Well, the powerful few have long known We've got to keep the masses distracted. If we don't keep them distracted, they're going to start thinking, and then they're going to start standing in front of us and rebelling, right? And so, having crushed the ability to democratize through labor unions, they start thinking of ways for the, to put in play to keep the masses occupied, to keep us chasing the carrot, or else they would wind up having to uh, face people who will challenge the powers that be. So what happened in America after World War II, uh, business wanted to keep organized labor at bay through everything they had at keeping us diverted, occupied, busy, and therefore incapable of participation, right? They wanted to move us from being participants to being observers. And here we are introduced to the greatest manipulation ever heaped upon humanity that serves to keep the masses as spectators in this life rather than participants. They've turned us into consumers. We have become a, a society of consumers. Crushing labor unions, which is pretty much composed of working people actually thinking about, the, about what the few are doing to them. You understand that? When you're collectively organized with a bunch of people working towards something, you are actually thinking about what management keeps trying to throw down. And so you're constantly at odds with them and they hate that. So, ex so they devised a plan to turn us into consumers and it was bought by everybody except the hippies and some radicals and eccentrics and the Occupy uh, Wall Streeters of late. The people who say, we don't care about your consumerism. We're going to stand against you. And that terrifies the few. They want to get those, those people busy so that they can start not thinking. 
This brings us to our ninth principle, last principle of Chomsky, and we're going to leave him behind, the manufacturing of consent. Or providing or creating something that would cause the masses to willingly set aside reason, criticism, uh, ideals, intellect, desire for democracy, liberty, and replace their right to participate uh, by making them spectators and, or really puppets in the hands of the few. And what was that something they created? It was simply pure and simple consumerism. Total abject devotion to getting things, buying things, possessing things, looking a certain way, achieving certain things to be viewed as accomplished and as successful and as valuable as the few are. And they did this through the most formidable force that few of us can resist, advertising. Prior to World War II, advertising, because of the television and everything else, advertising in newsprint, it was very, very honest. You want a car? This one costs $2,000. Come and get it. You know, it was very, you know, professionally pitching to people products and lifestyles is what advertising started to do after World War II. Creating needs out of mere wants and telling us that these very goals are obtainable while creating the goals for us. We sit there and we watch and it tells us what our goals should be. We sit there and listen to the commercials and they tell us what we should desire what we should purchase, what we should be seeking after in our lives, in our bodies, in our houses, in our cars, in our clothes, in our makeup, in the food we eat, and what our hair should look like. <laughs> All of it, right? In order that we can be acceptable and admired and loved and deemed worthy of love. You're going to see these principles all apply to what the organized few in the churches do. So next week, that's what we're going to do. But Society as a whole bit into this hook, line, and freaking sinker, not realizing that we were being reeled in from an ocean of liberty and being cast into a boat of servile spectatorship. And they did this by presenting apparent opportunities through advertising for the lower classes, the working class, the struggling classes, to become like the Kardashians to become like Bruce Jenner, or whatever her name is now, to become like what the, what the fancy people do. And the internet has continued to perpetuate this. So it was important for the few to make many people believe a number of things relative to this principle. First, it was important for them to maintain a standard of class and class consciousness as a means to give people something to shoot for. And then it's important that all the people believe that they have the actual ability to become like that rock star, like that uh, sports star who's promoting the product. By that association, we change our ideals. We look to that thing and we take our mind and our sights off the goal, right? So buying through acquiring things, money, goods, Maybelline, tennis shoes, the upper class, we have access to it. By getting the masses to buy into consumerism, the few have manufactured the many's consent to be lulled away from real living. They've, they've manufactured our consent. We've said we will allow ourselves to be lulled away from what real living is and, uh, and lulled into the endless pursuit of the unobtainable by greedily grabbing at the obtainable at every chance we can. Chomsky says, quote, the public relations industry, the advertising agencies, which is dedicated to creating consumers, is a phenomenon developed in the freest countries, which are Britain and the United States, and the reason is pretty clear. It became clear almost a century ago that it was not going to continue to be easy to control the population by force. Too much freedom had been won. 
due to women's rights and labor unions and other democratizing factors. And so it became apparent that if the masses could not be controlled by force in freer societies like the U.S. and Britain, that they have to be controlled through beliefs and attitudes. Through beliefs and attitudes. Are you, in your mind, are you hearing what the churches have done to? When we get to it next week, you're going to start to see it. We can't control them by force like they did uh, back in the Church of England or in Constantine or the Catholic uh, years of 500 to uh, 1500 AD. We can't control them by force anymore. We have to do it through beliefs and attitudes. Remember that. Chomsky says, well, one of the best ways to control people in terms of attitudes is what the great political economist Thorstein Veblen called fabricating consumers. Thorstein Veblen is an acerbic Norwegian economist who coined the term conspicuous consumption. He's the one who came up with that uh, as a means to describe social status through wealth. He also wittingly reversed the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Thorstein Veblen said, invention is the mother of necessity. You know what that says? Advertising is going to cause the, the desires and the wants. So this fabrication, Chomsky says, can fabricate wants, make, obtain things within your reach, the essence of life, to become consumers. He says, read the business papers in the 1920s where it openly, quote, talks about directing people to the superficial things of life, fashionable consumption, and that will keep them out of our hair, end quote. You see, it's manipulation on the biggest scale. He cites Walter Lippmann, a major progressive of the 20th century, who wrote essays, famous essays on democracy, saying, quote, the public must be put in its place so that the responsible men can make decisions without interference from the bewildered herd. In other words, when the masses, the bewildered herd, were spectators and not participants, then they would properly function as a democracy. Chomsky adds that in light of these insights from men like Lippmann, that subsequently Madison Avenue, representing advertising writ large, ran with this as its goal. Fabricate consumers. Fabricate consumers. And this is done with great sophistication, he adds. He says that the ideal, I'm going to wrap it up, is seen today that our girls, actually, if they have a free day in the week, will spend their day walking through the mall instead of going to the library. Because if you, if you teach our girls to go to the library, they're going to learn and they're going to uh, start to think for themselves. But no, they all walk through the mall because it's been fabricated for them. Chomsky notes somberly, quote, the idea is to try and control everyone, to turn the whole society into a perfect system, with the perfect system being society becoming a dyad or a pair. The pair is you and your television set, or you and the internet, in which that presents you with what kind of life you should have, what kind of gadgets you need, and you spend your lifetime and effort trying to gain those things which you don't need, you don't want, you throw away, but that has become the measure of a decent life. Then he adds, what we see is, for instance, in the advertising of television, consumers are supposed to make purchases based on rational and informed choices. Again, he says consumers are supposed to make uh, choices on rational and informed choices. If this is the case, then, he says, why does uh, advertising fill us with non-information and irrational reasons for making a purchase? He says, uh, instead of television and print ads presenting pertinent information to give us actual choice-making uh, material, he says, everything has little to do with the facts. McDonald's presents us with a fun-filled outing and the family gathered together just having a great time. What does that have to do with the Chicken McNugget? And he says, the, the, your truck ad, you don't see the basics of what the truck's about. 
you see a truck going up off a cliff with a warning saying, don't do this yourself. Only, only specialized drivers should try this thing. It's giving you this ideal that we're not even supposed to follow. And, and, and medicine advertisements, which tell us, you know, they show a couple, it's for erection dysfunction, <laughs> sitting and looking at a, at a sunset. And, and then suddenly in a super fast language, be careful, this will cause death, uh, cancer, heartache. Blah, 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 blah. And it just shows the couple just living the life because it's all a fabrication. We don't hear the negative. We don't see the truck crashing. We don't see the clogged arteries from McDonald's. We see the imagery they've fed us and we go along with it because that's how humans are. The whole point of advertising then is to create uninformed consumers that will make irrational choices about things. Uninformed consumers that will make irrational choices. And that is everything advertised, products, service, even elections are typically not based on informed choices or rational decisions. They're based on uninformed choices and irrational decisions. I mean, Chomsky even points out that our former president of the United States, Barack Obama, after winning his election, was awarded by the advertising agency their highest award for his marketing campaign. That's what he was given. And, and he says, though I don't agree with Sarah Palin, she was right when she said it was all the hopey, changey stuff. Uh, he agrees with her because that's what it was that sold the election. The hopey, changey stuff, right? So here we are. We've finally landed. We've done our paint-by-numbers picture using Chomsky's numbers to create the picture. And there are the few that work arduously to keep the many from being participants. They want us to be spectators that keep our mouths shut, do what they say, and they do it in the name of God. We're going to continue to talk about them striking directly at the root next week. Let's open the phone lines, 801-590-8413. And with that, how about an advertisement for the new... <laughs> just kidding. Uh, offline question, what is the scriptural evidence Jesus having written on his thigh? Revelations 19.16 says, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, maybe it's written on the uh, robe by his thigh, but it says on his thigh was written. So, you know, if he can have that, I don't think he minds uh, other things. Um, do we have a spot? One spot ready to go. We spent the first seven years talking about Mormonism and trying to get people to come out of Mormonism. And I just embraced all that modern Christianity was without thinking too much about it. Once I stopped focusing on Mormonism and we began to look around to see what LDS people are going to, I was appalled. That threw me into seeking and trying to understand the Bible, and I realized there are as many divergent, opposing positions on main theological issues as there are agreements. It really blew my mind. So what happens is you're saying people leave Mormonism, leave Mormonism, they come out and then they go into a Pentecostal church, Presbyterian church, five-point Calvinist, or they go into a Jesus-only church, and it's endless. And so we started thinking, what is the root cause of that? And the root cause is taking the Bible, applying it to your life right now, and saying, it has to be this way rather than that. And so we wrote a book, and it's called Knife to a Gunfight. And the premise of that is, we're misinterpreting the purpose and place of the New Testament. We've taken it and we've said, we are going to use it as a manual on how everybody has to be, a new law. When in reality, it should be a spiritual map. It should be a book that teaches us about God through the history of the Jews and the Gentiles and the early church. And it shouldn't become a knife that we stab each other with. The spirit is the gun. The spirit is what slays us all. And so if you're a truth seeker and you really want to worship God in spirit and in truth, consider this book and the concepts in it.
we put a lot of time and effort into that to manipulate the hell out of you. Uh, just kidding. If, if you can't afford that book, uh, we want you to read it, and so we will send it to anybody. You want the book, you can't afford it, please uh, write us and say, send us the book, give us an address, and we'll do it. We do that with all of our books. Always have, always will. God has allowed us to do it. We're out of time. We're not out of time. We have five minutes left, but we don't have calls, and so this was an espresso, heart of the matter. We'll see you next week. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going This man's awake the storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till the...